Well, it's good to be with you guys again tonight. Um, let me say from the outset that I just met with uh, Lottie, one of the counselors here, about two hours ago, and it was incredible. And also, if, if tears vertically shoot from my eyeballs as I talk tonight, just bear, just bear with me. I'm a little raw in a good way. Um, so thank you, Lonnie. <laughs> I think, I, I know. Um, last night, we're, so we're doing a conference on depression. And last night, we kind of took a, a big picture of you talking about what does it feel like the condition to have, to struggle with depression or deep anxiety. And then we talked about also just the complexity that sometimes our temptation, often our temptation in Christian circles is to, like Robert was just saying, make something that is incredibly, even biblically shown to us as complex. And in our, whatever you want to call it, our American something, we long to make it more simple. We long to make it more black and white. And Scripture and, and Jesus just won't let us do that. And that's what we looked at last night. What I want to do tonight is get a little more practical. And the question I'm kind of, two questions I'm asking tonight is, okay, so you're, you're depressed. You, you've, you've wrestled with deep depression or anxiety. What do you do? Or, or where does it come from is the first question. What, what are some of the causes, potential causes of it that maybe are helpful to look at? And then secondly, kind of what do you do? What are some of the potential cures? And again, please understand that I'm, I'm saying this not as anything definitive. I'm saying this not as anything comprehensive. And I'm speaking somewhat from within my own story. But I think I'm also within the tradition of, of just the Christian life over the years of things that have been helpful and things that are still helpful today. But to do that, I want to look at, again, a background passage I'm going to read for us that I want in our minds. I'm going to start with that, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to jump in. The background passage tonight is one of the most, I think, confusing and beautiful scenes from Jesus' life. And it's a scene where I think, if if we're being honest, we don't know what to do with it, because it, it really does seem like, and I think because it is true, Jesus in this moment wrestles with a deep, deep kind of despair and anxiety and depression. It's from, I'm reading from Luke 22, it's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the question I want you to think about is, do you have a Jesus who's, who was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Here's what Luke writes. He says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. How lonely he must have felt when all of his disciples fell asleep in his moment of despair and weakness. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let me pray for us, and I want to dive in. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are one who is a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. And Lord, if if you were not that, where else would we go? But Lord, we praise you that you welcome us as one who understands and relates and has come all the way down. And not just to sit with us, but to take our place and to to bear our sorrows and to bear our burdens. And Lord, I pray, Lord, would you please be so gracious to meet us in that place tonight? 
to be unto us the man of sorrows, well acquainted with our griefs. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So I'm just going to jump right in. First, I just want to think about just some causes, potential causes for depression and anxiety. And the first thing I want to do is make what I I think is a really important distinction. And that distinction is this. That when we think about something like depression, we we need to kind of say that it's, it's best for us to divide it into two categories. One is what we could call situational or circumstantial depression. And that means you experience something hard. We, we live in what the Puritans call this veil of tears, and we experience sad things, tragedies, losses. And because of that, we get depressed. And in that sense, this conference is for everybody. Because whether you've yet to experience that or you have experienced that, we all are going to face the hardness and brokenness of life, of ourselves, and of loss, and in that way become very depressed or deeply anxious. But there are those of us, like Robert mentioned, like William Cooper, who are faced with something that's more clinical, something that that more lives with us. It's part of our makeup. It runs in our families. This is when I I remember meeting with our family doctor when I had my first real major bout with depression in college, and he kind of sat me down and said, see, would you understand this makes so much sense? I've known your whole family, and you understand going back to your grandparents, depression is something that your family has severely wrestled with. And I think for reasons Robert mentioned, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to see that. Because I wanted God to just take it away. I wanted God just to, to make it go away or to give me some kind of tools, give me some kind of steps, give me a book, give me a sermon, give me a pill, anything just to make it go away. And instead, I think the Lord in that moment was beginning to say of me, like Robert mentioned, what would it look like for you to bear this burden for me? And to learn to steward, to learn to live with this well. And that's where some of us are. Some of us live more on the clinical side. And I think it's an important distinction. Here's the way John Cassian, again, it seems like Christians long ago got this way better than we did. John Cassian is living in the first century. He's a monk, and here's what he said. He said, of dejection, there are two kinds. One, that which springs up when anger has died down or is the result of some loss we have incurred or of some purpose which has been hindered and interfered with. And the other that which comes from unreasonable anxiety of mind or from despair. And I think I just want to make that distinction from the outset, that I'm not sure which side you struggle on, but I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. But second, I want to kind of think about what are some potential triggers that whether you're on the situational side or whether you're on the clinical side really seem to to trigger or, or bring out these bouts of depression and I think there are several. I'm just going to, if you're an alliterative person, by the way, if you like, like alliteration, tonight is your night. You're going to get a lot of alliteration. Just want to say that. No, I'm not proud of that. I'm kind of ashamed of that. Um, but just, just know that at the outset. So some potential triggers that I think we do well to kind of think about when we think about our own struggles with depression and anxiety. Here's the first one. We can simply call it stress. Um, sometimes we get depressed because of a stressful life event. You know, again, Psalm 42, we didn't say this last night, but part of that depression is he's in Babylon. He's not, there. He's been, there's been a major change in his circumstances. There's been a stressful life event. This can be getting married. This can be, for my wife, her, her, her dad died of multiple myeloma three years ago, and it sent her into a pretty deep-seated anxiety for her. A death of a loved one. It can be losing a job. It can be moving. It can be divorce. It can be having a child. It can be all kinds of stressful life events that really bring out or seem to trigger our depression. But sometimes we get depressed because of a stressful lifestyle. Um, we're working too much. We're sleeping too much or sleeping too little. We're eating too much or 
eating too little, we're exercising too little, we're resting too little. There's this real sense of it takes humility to live within our limits as human beings. It takes humility to live within those limits. So sometimes it's stress. Second, sometimes it's something we can simply call suppositions. What I mean by that is these ingrained inner messages that we live with, these ideas that sometimes go unchecked or unchallenged, what we could call faulty thinking, or what my counselor likes to call inner room messages that somehow get developed somewhere along the way, these faulty core beliefs or assumptions about yourself or about God or about how life works, and they really do seem to, to merge well and bring out depression and anxiety. Here are some that have been the case for me that are some of my inner room messages. Here's a huge one. To be happy, I must be accepted by all people at all times. Here's another. If I make a mistake, it means that I am a mistake. Here's another. If someone disagrees with me, it means that they hate me, which makes ministry and life really fun. Um, Another one, my value as a person depends, you see a theme here of approval, depends on what others think of me and what I mean, think well of me. And here's a huge one that came out a lot today. If, if my dad can leave, everyone's going to leave. That's a huge part of my story. It's, it's actually the first place I became depressed. My dad was a well-to-do Southerner. Uh, he was a kind of, I don't know how to say it, sort of a the most city kind of farmer that you've ever met. He farmed with my grandfather. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe him. Incredibly well-liked, very well-educated, um, just, just one of the most likable people you've, you'll ever meet. But my dad nursed a cocaine addiction. My dad also uh, cheated a ton in my mom. And when I was 12 years old, he met a woman who introduced him to crack cocaine, and that consumed him. It consumed his life. And there was a real sense that he just—he essentially just left and abandoned our family. And I'll, I remember trying to cope with that as a 12-year-old. I remember coming up from school and my pastor and my mom sitting me down uh, after school and saying, "See, we want you to know your, your dad has just been checked into a rehab place in upstate South Carolina. And he, you know, is an, he's an alcoholic, he's a drug addict, and he's going to be in recovery for a long, long time. And he's not coming home anytime soon. My parents had already been divorced at this point, And I just remember all I wanted to do was, was go sleep. All I wanted to do was go play my Sega Genesis. All I wanted to do was, you know, to go look at porn. All I wanted to do was to go do anything that brought any measure of comfort. And this interim message developed that is easy for me to live in. If dad left everyone's going to leave, so don't get close to anybody. And of course, what that does is you isolate, and you don't even let your wife get close, you don't let friends get close, and part of what that does is perpetuate, perpetuates the depression, it perpetuates the anxiety. So suppositions can be a huge trigger. Third, we could just talk about sin. Sometimes we get depressed because of sin. And sometimes that means both areas of direct disobedience to the Father and then sometimes more often and more hit, like in hidden ways, it means idols of our hearts. You know, our idols, I love the way Tim Keller talks about our idols. <laughs> they, we think they're going to fulfill us, and they always, always, always fail us. And there's a real sense in which that furthers the struggle with depression and anxiety. It's part of what David owns in Psalm 32. 
when he talks about finally confessing, finally, he does that weird thing where he says, when I try to cover my sin, when I try to cover my idolatry, I was in deep depression and struggle, but when I confessed it to you, O Lord, you covered me. You covered me with your righteousness. You covered me with your grace. Psalm 32 is a case study in how sin and depression relate to each other. That's why I love the way Ed Welch, he has this article called Hope for the Depressed, and here's what he says. He says, do you see any of these things in your life? He's talking about relating your idolatry to depression. He says, if you made someone besides God the center of your life and you lose him or her, you will feel isolated and without purpose. Can you see how this can give way to depression? You made another person your reason for living, and now without him or her, you feel hopeless and unable to go on. You may not realize it, but the Bible tells us that this is idol worship. You're worshiping what God created instead of him. If you feel like you failed in the eyes of other people, your success in the opinions of others is of critical importance, you can slip into depression. Can you see the spiritual roots? Your success and the opinions of others have become your gods, and they are more important to you than serving Christ. If you feel like you did something very wrong, and you want to manage your sin apart from the cross of Jesus, depression is inevitable. We always want to believe that we can do something, like feeling really bad for our sins, but that is just pride. We actually think that we can pay God back, but this attitude minimizes the beauty of the cross and Jesus' full payment for sin. And this one gets me every time. He says, if you are angry and don't practice forgiveness, you can easily slide into depression. The simple formula is sadness plus anger equals depression. What makes us angry shows us what we love and what rights we hold dear. Unforgiveness shows that we are not willing to trust God, to bind up our broken hearts, and to judge justly. Deal with your sadness and anger by pouring your heart out to God. Use the Psalms as your prayers. Ask for faith so that you can trust God to be your defender and your helper. Sometimes we get depressed because of sin, and sometimes we don't love that connection because our view of sin might be too shallow. But I think he gets at something really profound. But fourth, sometimes we get depressed because, of, because we're sick. Because our bodies, which include our brains, aren't working like they should. This is something that it took me a long time to, I think, just to, just to submit to. This idea that if, if I believe that part of the fall is that I, I inhabit this broken body in this broken world... Why is it that I do think that my liver or my kidneys or my heart, like my, my stepdad just had this massive heart attack, his heart has been failing him. Why do I not think in some kind of way that my brain can't fail me in the same way? I, I get, like I, I'm not at all, like I am not a science person. Let me just put that out here, so please hear me. I am not any stretch. I, like I went from English to trying to teach in education to, to psychology, which I guess is a, a soft science. We could talk afterwards. But <laughs> there's a real sense in which we don't know as much about the brain as we will. And is it possible, this is, gets into the whole medicine conversation, and again, no silver bullets, but can we be open to the fact that maybe sometimes our, our brains or the way that things are working are broken? And this little book that so much, of, so much I've learned from that is kind of a part of this um, conference is this little book by a guy named David Murray called Christians Get Depressed Too. It's a little tiny book with a frowny face in it, which is kind of brilliant. And he says this, it's helpful to me. He says, as the brain is the most complex organ in our body, it is liable to be the most affected of all our organs by the fall. And as processing our thoughts is the main activity of our brain, we can expect this area at times to fail and break, and here's the catch, through no fault of our own. Let me say that again. Through no fault of our own. 
with subsequent emotional and behavioral problems, that, that isn't to deny that a person is responsible for how he responds to mechanical, chemical, or electrical failures and faults in any part of his body, just to say that the brain is part of that body and can fail. Sometimes we get depressed and anxious because of sickness. Fifth, and this one's a little harder, but sometimes we get depressed because it's God's wise, good, loving, and mysterious will to allow us to be depressed. I think this one might be the hardest. We get depressed because it's part of God's will for us. I love the way that David Pallison gets at this. He says this. He says, so often the initial reaction to painful suffering is, why me? Why this? Why now? Why? But then God comes for you. In the flesh, in Christ, into suffering on your behalf. He does not offer advice and perspective from afar. He steps into your significant suffering. He will see you through and work with you the whole way. This reality changes the questions that rise up from your heart. That inward turning, why me? quiets down, lifts its eyes, and begins to look around. You turn outward, and new wonderful questions form. Why you? Why would you enter this world of evils? Why would you go through loss, weakness, hardship, sorrow, and death? Why would you do this for me, of all people? But you did. You did this for the joy set before you. You did this for love. You did this showing the glory of God in the face of Christ. And as that deeper question sinks home, you become joy, I love this line, joyously sane, joyously sane. The universe is no longer supremely about you, You, yet you are not irrelevant. God's story makes you just the right size. Everything counts, but the scale changes to something that makes much more sense. You face hard things, but you have already received something better, which can never be taken away. Finally, you are prepared to pose and to mean almost unimaginable questions. And I love this. Why not me? Why not this? Why not now? If in some way my faith might serve as a three-watt nightlight in a very dark world, why not me? If he sanctifies to me my deepest desires, if he bears me in his arms, if my weakness demonstrates to the power of God to save us from all that is wrong, if my honest struggle shows others how to land on their feet, if my life becomes a source of hope to others, why not me? Of course, you don't want to suffer, but you've become willing. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And like him, your loud cries and tears will in fact be heard by the one who saves from death. Like him, you will learn obedience through what you suffer. Like him, you will sympathize with the weaknesses of others. Like him, you will deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. And like him, you will display faith to a faithless world, hope to a hopeless world, love to a loveless world, life to a dying world. And maybe this is part of God's design in our suffering, in our depression, in our anxiety, that we might bear something of what Jesus is all about to the world around us. But then six, and finally, sometimes we get depressed because of what I just want to call seasons. I, was, I had a pretty painful season. Some of you follow me on Twitter, but about three years ago, I got accused of plagiarism on Twitter. It was just, sounds like a silly thing to talk about, but it was really profound, really a hard season of life. And this guy, uh, really, that was a, is a Facebook friend. I've never even met before. He lives in Waco, Texas. But he really, he had had a similar thing happen in his life, and he wanted 
to just minister in whatever way he could. So he sent me this book, which sounds like one of a terrible way. He sent a bottle of wine as well, which was helpful. But he also sent this book by Walter Brueggemann called Spirituality of the Psalms. And in this book, the idea that, that really stuck with me was he's, he's looking at the Psalms and he says there really are three types of Psalms. One, you have these Psalms of orientation, where life is good, the sun is shining all around, and we're thankful to God for his many blessings. But then you come in these Psalms like Psalm 42 or like Psalm 88 that are what he calls Psalms of disorientation. Life is hard. Life feels upside down. The sun is gone. And we ask questions like, if we're being honest, God, where are you? And I think one of my favorites of the psalmist asks her, God, are you, like, are you asleep? Are you asleep at the wheel in heaven? How could you bring this into my life? And then he says in this beautiful way, part of what grows out of that is what he calls psalms of reorientation. Where life feels new, where we really have been changed, and God is faithful. He, it's almost like God shows us, gives us a front row, what one of my mentors used to say, gives us a front row seat to see his work of grace and goodness in our lives. And, and when, when Brueggemann kind of ends it, he says, this is the cruciform life. This is the, this is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And part of what depression and anxiety can do for us is sometimes we're in that season. And sometimes that season lasts, like we're saying, a long, long time, a lifelong time. And yet part of that could be God giving us a new song, God deepening our desires, reshaping us in ways that only suffering can do. So those are some of the causes. Again, not exhaustive, but something that I think, at least in my own life, has been really common. But what about the cure? So what do we do with that? You know, is there anything that we can do with that? And the first thing I want to kind of say under the cures is let's just take the medicine question head on. Because I know for a lot of us, it's a controversial question in our circles. I know I've done a, a lot of different kinds of counseling, and, and the counselors felt very differently about medicine. And I think for me, when I think about, you know, I had this conversation recently with a student who they don't know yet that they struggle with deep-seated anxiety. So I'm trying to kind of gently convince them that they do. And that also medicine is not this shameful thing. Again, if, if we have a, a broken body, which could include a broken brain, we, again, medicine's not going to be a silver bullet, but it could be like Luther we heard last night, could be something that's a helpful part of a multifaceted solution. And I'm trying to kind of gently begin having that conversation with one of my students. And the funny thing is I see in him something that I so often see in myself when it comes to any kind of deep, Anything that, any kind of deep thing I need to face, which certainly has been depression in my own life. And it's the story that I, the story I always think about is the story of Naaman. Do you remember the story of Naaman from the Bible? It's from uh, Kings. And it's this funny story where he gets leprosy and he, he, this little slave girl tells him to go see, you know, Elisha and, and he, and he does and he goes kind of triumphant in this huge sort of procession and has a certain idea in his mind of how his healing is going to come. And it's supposed to come from the king and it's supposed to come in this royal, maybe with a ceremony, maybe, maybe with a, like, you know, it's supposed to be, he has in his mind how his healing is supposed to come. And you remember the story? Like he goes to Elisha and then Elisha sends the servant and says, go wash in the Jordan, which was this nasty, like, Place. 
And he says, nope, nope, not doing that. And I think sometimes, my only worry, my only worry about some of us is that that's our response to something like medicine. Is we're like, nope, that's not how my healing's supposed to come. God, let me tell you how my healing's supposed to come. And what if, you know, I love the way Rankin Wilburn uh, will say, he just said to us at RF training, anything that humbles me is good for me. It, anything that humbles me is good for me. What if, could we be, so my, my, my goal with my student is not, I don't know that medicine's going to be even a super helpful part of his moving forward. I really don't. But I do know I want to challenge the pride that says, not, not me, you can be in medicine, you could be weak, not me. And I wonder sometimes when it comes to, I know in my own story that's been a huge battle. I don't want to be that person. And can, I, can we just say, like, as Christians, we are already that, we're already that. We're, we are that, we are those people. We are that, we got saved by saying, Jesus I am too weak to save myself. Please save me. And what if sanctification, what if the Christian life is continuing in that posture? And what if, for you, who's fighting against this idea of medicine, what if medicine is a way, what is if it's part of the cure, part of your, to humble your heart? Not a silver bullet. I'll tell you my own experience. I usually say this. Um, you know, my, my experience with medicine has been sorted, I'll be honest. Uh, when I had my deepest bout in college, I uh, saw both a, a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and I got uh, put on, at the time, this was in 2001, uh, Effexor, which was an SSRI, and Depakote, because I was having these massive mood swings. And the one thing that I, I think underestimated, and I think this is different now, but it did lead to some tremendous weight gain, part of which the Wendy's I mentioned last night was part of. But apparently, as I've read a little bit, I'm not an expert, I think if I understand it right, that sometimes SSRIs can make you crave carbohydrates. But do I, do I ever not crave carbohydrates? <laughs> I mean, they're kind of my jam. Um, but I think there's a sense in which it says you can crave it more, which can explain some of the weight gain. I, some of you know far more than me about why that is a potential. Uh, so I did that for a while, and it, I'll be honest, it was helpful. Um, it, it helped stabilize, it helped provide some space to begin processing some things. And then again, again, uh, I had a season where my depression was pretty manageable. And then when I got back into to ministry or when I got into ministry and at Georgia Southern, my depression came back with a pretty, with a vengeance and that continued to South Carolina. And then I got back on Lexapro and Lexapro has been incredibly helpful um, in my life. And right now I would say my, my depression is in a place where I feel like through some diet through some exercise has been manageable, but I, I do see medicine for me as, as a long-term thing. It's not something that I think will be just for a short season. I, I, you know, it's going to be a part of the, the learning to live with my depression well going forward. And that, My whole thing, though, is I, I just want to put the option on the table, not a silver bullet, but maybe, maybe a part of a multifaceted cure. And I hate to even use the word cure, but learning to live with your depression or your anxiety well. And now I just want to spend the rest of the time just in some more practical suggestions, really. And for my practical people, this is, this is you. This is your section. And it's a little more alliteration. Uh, this is really coming straight from David Murray's book, Christians Get Depressed Too. 
and he gives some, some helpful suggestions. Well, how do I learn to live with my depression or my anxiety well? And here's the first one he says, simply routine. Making and keeping a regular routine that helps your work, eat, sleep, and relax, relaxation balance. Doing that in some, some kind of orderly, self-controlled way. Getting up at the same time, going to bed at the same time. Eating a bowl of kashi in the morning. Um, I do kind of think that kashi, unless you're a horse, doesn't taste very good. <laughs> but if you are a horse, you are in luck. It is amazing. Um, but there's a sense, you know, I don't know, I can only speak from my own, from within my own personality. I, I kind of loathe, I don't kind of, I do loathe discipline. And a lot of times in my life, I think part of why in college my depression got so bad was I, I had no, no routine, no, no self-control, no self-discipline. And I don't want to make it seem like, because the other, the flip side of this is, I mean, some of you are the people who you're, you're more militant. And I'm not, again, these are not exhaustive. These are not cures in the sense of you do this, you'll, it'll go away. Um, and for some of you, like, do it, but don't be perfectionistic about it. So you missed your run. So you got up an hour late. So what? Uh, you, you need Jesus even in your best day. And I think this is where, you know, I talked about shooting, that idea of shooting all over yourself last night. I have a counselor who likes to say, anytime we would say should in a session, she would say, she would stop you and say, get to. I should have read about, you get to read your Bible. I should have gotten up. You get to. And part of what she was trying to, in this really teacher, you know, sixth grade teacher way, was to say the gospel really does change our shoulds into get to's. We don't live under the, we don't live under condemnation. We live under the gospel of the freedom and the grace of Jesus Christ, and it changes should to get to. So do your routine not from a place of should, but from the grace of get to. Second, relaxation. Uh, whether it's Netflix, whether it's grabbing a drink with friends, going for a walk, going for a jog, going for a run for the more ambitious of you, doing hot yoga, ordering pizza, work relaxation into your routine. Um, and I think part of this for me has been, I would also say under this, develop a good sense of humor. Laugh a lot. You know, I was sharing with some of the pastors earlier, one of my best friends in the world struggles really severely with depression. He went to Covenant College, and he was going to Joe Nevinson's church at the time. And he hadn't really talked to anybody about his depression, so he tried to get a meeting with Joe, and Joe agreed to meet with him. And he was going into that meeting pretty nervously. What was, what was Joe going to say? What was he going to recommend? What was his homework going to be? And I think he thought it was going to be read your Bible more, pray more, get more involved in church. And what Joe said really shocked him. Because Joe basically said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to buy a couple seasons of Seinfeld, and I want you to watch two episodes a night with your roommates, and then go to bed. <laughs> I kind of love, I mean, I just love that. <laughs> because there's a sense in which Joe, Joe was acknowledging his humanity, and, the, and sometimes we, a lot of times we are terrible at this as Christians, is we want to do the Jesus juke and go to the super spiritual thing, but we, we kind of don't treat each other as these humans who, who need to laugh. Chesterton said about laughter, laughter has something in it common with the ancient winds of faith and inspiration. 
It unfreezes pride and unwinds secrecy. It makes men forget themselves in the presence of something greater than themselves. What laughter is, you know, I love this as Tolkien gets into this idea that laughter really is. Remember that scene in Lord of the Rings? And it's, it's the scene between Sam and Gandalf. And it's that scene where Tolkien describes, they're talking about you know, the journey that's just happened, and it says that Gandalf laughed this great laugh. And the way Tolkien describes it is he says, it was like water for a parched land. Laughter has up bound within it this resurrection hope that says you don't have to take yourself so seriously because the Lord Jesus takes you so seriously and has done all that is needed to be done. I love the scene, too, from, from C.S. Lewis in, in his lesser-known series, uh, Paralandra. There's a scene where Ransom uh, comes before this great being, Oyasara, and, and here's, he has this moment where, and here's, I'm just going to read it. I love the way that Lewis says it. He said, unexpectedly, the king laughed, and his body was very big, and his laugh was like an earthquake in it, loud and deep and long, until in the end, Ransom laughed, too, though he had not seen the joke. And the birds began, this is how I envisioned Jesus welcoming us into heaven, by the way. And the birds began clapping their wings, and the beasts wagging their tails, and the light seemed brighter, and the pulse of the whole assembly quickened, and new modes of joy that had nothing to do with mirth as we understand it passed into them all, as it were from the very air, or as, after, or as if there were dancing in deep heaven. Some say there always is. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is laugh. It shows you don't take yourself too seriously. It shows that you know you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and it shows you have a joyful Savior. A joyful Savior who's going to throw the best party. It's called the Mary Supper of the Lamb. It's going to make the best party you've ever been to pale in comparison because of his infectious laugh. Do you have a, a Savior who laughs? We, we do. Second relaxation. Third, recreation. Similar. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is, is go for a walk. Or go for a run. Uh, or play basketball. Or play ultimate frisbee. Or do anything that gets you outside. I say this as an avid. I am an avid indoorsman. I love the indoors. The indoors are where I want to camp. And I want to hike. And I want indoors. Uh, but I recognize that sometimes I do, you know, Spurgeon used to say, just getting out in the sun, having a, a picnic uh, and, and, and some grassy field, um, that sometimes that's what we need to get the endorphins flowing, to get the heart pumping. Um, but then again, this is so hard because if you're in a depressed, if you have a depression filter, you, you live in this all or nothing thinking. So don't be perfectionistic about it. Literally walk before you run. Like so many times, I've done that walk, that um, couch to five k, and like I just shame myself all the way until I get to where I can run the five k. And I'm, I wish I'm trying to learn how to be more gentle with myself and just, like, just walking is okay. It's good for me. Um, fourth, we get something called just rest. Again, these are similar ideas, but rest. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap, go to bed. So you can get enough sleep. And this is where I think we're entering into this conversation that we, again, have not, I don't think we handle this very well as Christians, is there's a difference, I think, between, I'm just going to say it like this, self-love and self-care. There's a difference between selfishness 
and actually taking yourself seriously and in the most genuine way, loving yourself the way Jesus does. And in that sense, doing self-care. And I think Jesus modeled this in his ministry. I don't want to go too far, and you could, we can definitely talk afterwards, but I think Jesus showed this really healthy sense of saying, no, I need to go be alone. I need to go be with my father. I need to take a break. I need to, to take a nap. Uh, there's a real sense Jesus modeled this as the perfect man. And I think I would say, a good friend said to me, there is a difference, though, between resting and numbing. I like to numb. And I have to be careful. Sometimes I can slip into numbing. So part of how I know that is it's, it's probably a good thing for me to watch a few episodes of Netflix. But it probably can slip into numbing when I watch like an entire season of Walking Dead. Just in a day, you know. Just in my, in my sweatpants. Just... Sometimes that's good, though, but sometimes it can slip into numbing. You have to kind of maybe invite friends or, and really be honest in that. Again, uh, eating a Wendy's spicy chicken, I am probably going to do that at some point this weekend just because it ministers to my soul. <laughs> but to do it every night like I did in college probably was me trying to escape and numb, and there's a, a tension there um, that we need to, to bear with. Fifth, what we get something called reprioritizing, looking over your commitments. Where are you ever committed? Where are you trying to do too much? Where are you taking too much on? Uh, you're going to burn out. Where do you need to cut back? Uh, and some of us, where, where are you undercommitted? Where do you need to show up a little more? Where do you need to, to kind of put yourself out there a little more? And this is where Jed Edmondson, again, he has this uh, helpful checklist, and we're not going to read the whole thing, but he calls it when you're in funky town. I like the way he says that. And he says, he kind of has this checklist, diet, you know, healthy foods, whole foods that give energy. Are you reasonably, what's your diet like? What's your exercise like? Too much drains, but just enough sustains, he says. Uh, mental stimuli, you know, doing something that, that stimulates your thinking. One of the pastors was sharing today about how learning something is a part of what kind of helps guard against slipping into burnout or depression. Uh, work, you know, a, a little... When low, sometimes even none, take a day off. Baby steps, realistic goals, he says. Don't be afraid to pat yourself on the back in a godly way, to sit back and enjoy the fruit of your labor. And then he says, play. Uh, a lot when low. Uh, he has this quote from uh, Legend of Bagger Vance, God is no more pleased than when his children are at play. And I love, where do you need to reprioritize some of those things? Six, we could simply call it Repentance. Where are you making good things into ultimate things? Where are you being controlled by anything other than Jesus? What are you setting your heart on? The call for us continually from Jesus is to repent and believe the gospel, but it's Romans 2, 4 kind of repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. This is where John Newton, his letters, I'm a fan along with Robert, and one of his letters he talks about how Jesus does not shame us out of our sins. He loves us out of our sins. And there's a profound difference between those two. And he invites us into a kind of grace-filled, grace-driven repentance. But I think sometimes for those of us who are on the depression side of things, we sometimes think, if you're like me, that my, my personality somehow exempts me from repentance, and it does not. So be careful and guard against that. And then lastly, we can simply say, seven, remember the gospel. This is where this... You know, I've taught this a number of times, and normally where I teach this is in an REF summer conference in a, in a seminar to college students. 
And every time I, I get to the end of it, it always strikes me afresh. This, this one thought always strikes me anew. And it's this thought. Is that, Sammy, your depression has never gone away. But the good news of the gospel is that the Lord, it's like the Lord says to me, but Sammy, even though your depression may never go away, I'm not going anywhere. I am with you, and I am for you, and I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. You know, I think, uh, I love the story, I don't know if you've been listening to this season, I'll close with this, of, of Serial. It's really different from the first season. But it's the story of, a lot of you know the story, even if you haven't listened, of Bo Bergdahl, the, the guy who went missing, kind of went off duty um, in Afghanistan and got captured, was held captive, uh, essentially by... Um, Al Qaeda, and it's this beautiful thing. I, I was listening to this one episode. I didn't. I don't. I wasn't that, that familiar with the story, but was really moved when, in the episode that was talking about his his parents. His parents are actually, I think, if I understand it right, in a, it were or are in a PCA church in in Idaho, which is interesting. But it was his dad. Something his dad did that was just so beautiful to me, because they were trying to figure out how do we get him home. What are we going to do to get him home? And his dad did this thing where he just poured himself into learning the culture of his, of his captors. And he even began learning the tongue, the native tongue, reading everything he'd get his hands on. And he went further than that. He even went so far as to grow a beard that would have been similar to the beard of his captors. And as I was listening to that story, and I was hearing and, and sort of watching his father plead with his captors to let his son go free, and his father who had so entered into his son's suffering... He didn't sit indifferently by. He did everything possible to enter in to the suffering of a son that he might, that his son might not be lost, but that, his, but that his son might be found, that he might be regained. That was Bo Bergdahl's father's heart. And every, when I was just, it's just such a small picture of Jesus. Because here's the thought that I just can't shake yesterday and today is when I'm thinking about Jesus in the garden, can we say it like this? That we have a Savior who had a nervous breakdown. That he might minister to you and enter into your nervous breakdown. That we have a Savior who Isaiah likes to say was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces and he says, surely, surely, Surely he has borne our griefs, and surely he has carried our sorrows. And I long for myself, and I long for you to, to, to let Jesus meet us in that way even tonight. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that that's true of you, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. Lord, would you draw near to us as one who knows who knows our need, who knows our suffering. Would you draw near and, and love us? We thank you that you are not a God who shames us, but you are a God who loves us into the places we need to go. Would you do that with us tonight? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.